Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Forensic Psychology is a podcast that provides an illuminating window into the workings of the criminal mind. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Carlos. I'm Andy Bringle. Hey, guys. How you doing? And today we're going to be looking at the Golden State Killer, Andy. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm pretty inter- interested in this case. It's, it's one that lasted for a couple decades, one unsolved, and it was only because of new technology that uh, police were able to find their men. So, uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about profiling. I um, want to plug my company, BehavioralScienceUnit.com, uh, where we can provide many services, including security audits, uh, behavioral assessments, and consulting and training. But in this particular case, we're talking about a, a serial killer who went on the prowl for about 25, 30 years before he stopped his killing spree. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. For decades, he was a killer on the loose in California. He was terrorizing victims from the, all the way from the southern coast, really close uh, to places I've been to, to you the know, Central Valley, to the Bay Area. I mean, he had a pretty huge yeah, geographical region. Prolific. I'm sorry? Yeah, I, I started to interrupt, but oh, I, I was going to say that you know you're a prolific serial killer when you have several nicknames. <laughs> that's this right. Case, this case is, uh, is a case in point. Yeah, he was the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, which he lost the title to Richard Ramirez, uh, the Visalia right. Ransacker before the last one, uh, the Golden State Killer, because he covered so much territory. And we know when you cover that kind of territory, you've been doing this a while. And he oh, yeah. also is what they term as an organized killer to a certain degree uh, because of the fact that he also um, traveled quite a bit. I think also it was also because right. of his work too. Yeah, he also he also did burglaries and on top of the the murders and the rapes that you often see with serial killers. He, this guy was uh, was a one man crime spree for sure. And we're going to be looking a little bit about his history. Of course, we'll dig into his past for a little bit. He does have a, a good, um, an interesting past. All right, folks, so let's take a look at James Joseph D'Angelo. The Golden State Killer was born November 8, 1945. He was born in New York. To Joseph James D'Angelo Sr., a sergeant in the United States Army, and his mom, Kathleen DeGroote. He has two younger sisters and a younger brother. Now, this is where the story starts going a little bit south. He had two younger sisters. I mean, a relative reported that when D'Angelo was a young child, he witnessed his seven-year-old sister being raped by two airmen in a warehouse in West Germany where the family was stationed at the time. Now, there was also a claim of other abuse in this facility. 
Following his conviction, one of D'Angelo's sisters claimed that he was abused by their father growing up. And you and I both know, Andy, a lot of these individuals, especially these serial killers, have abuse, whether it's child, whether it's sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, all the above when they're growing up. Oh, yeah, abuse, humiliation, um, you know, ch- early childhood trauma certainly is a, is a factor, especially trauma that, that develops into anger or rage. In, in this particular case, I think uh, there's evidence of that early in his life. Absolutely. And one caveat, folks, this does not mean everybody who's abused sexually or physically ends up being a serial killer. Obviously not. A very small majority of them. Right. A small majority. A very small amount of them. Um, and as Andy well, alluded it, to... I'm, I'm sorry, but to amplify that point, not every, not every sociopath uh, becomes a serial killer. Oh. Or a killer for that matter. So there's a, there are a lot of functioning sociopaths out there in in the world that never kill anyone that's true too yeah and that's another argument um for another day we can look at the differences because there's there's debate between the distinction between a psychopath sociopath which are non-clinical terms compared to antisocial personality disorder and they're all different degrees and nuances per each one um d'angelo here uh he could he could be a psychopath um, again, I don't, I don't know if they, if they determined that or not, if you took the checklist, if there's a PCL psychopathy checklist that you can take, and it's graded, and a score of over 30, obviously you have a very high amount of traits for psychopathy, uh, but if you're in the 20s, you, you are psychopathic, but not to a severe degree, more than likely what, to what Andy's referring to is somebody who's got psychopathy, but won't commit some of these heinous crimes. Um, I, I kind of drifted away. Let me get back over here. So uh, he attended high school, junior high school in Rancho Cordova. He attended Folsom High School. He received a GED certificate. So he's still got it together at this point. We don't have a lot of history of his criminal conduct, if he had any as a child. You did mention something about animals. He killed criminals. He did commit burglaries during his teenage years. Now, this is something we've seen with psychopaths because they have they have to have the conduct disorder which is a clinical term and these teenagers or adolescents you have to be under 18 to qualify for conduct disorder or to be uh, diagnosed with it and they tend to have this kind of delinquent behavior Um, they oppose authority they tend to harm animals now d'angelo actually killed animals he committed burglaries which is very common as well for people with conduct disorder larceny is big robberies um, so they have a lot of this criminal behavior early on, and then not all of people who have conduct disorder turn into uh, psychopaths. Again, a small amount. But we see similar behavioral patterns. Uh, D'Angelo then joined the United States Navy in September 1964, served for 22 months during the Vietnam War as a damage controlman in the destroyer tender USS Piedmont. Then he went to university. He graduated with an associate degree in police science. And I want to make a, a note here in a minute. He earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Uh, took late, D'Angelo took later a postgraduate course for the police training. Did an internship at the Roseville Police Department. Then in uh, 1973 to, uh, to 1976, he was a burglary unit police officer in Exeter, having relocated from Citrus Heights. 
but then in Auburn in August of 1976 and 1979, he was arrested for shoplifting a hammer and dog repellent. And then he was sentenced to six months probation and fired. Why am I highlighting this? Because it bugs me a little bit. Because a lot of people in the media were classifying him as a former police officer. It's not a lie, but it is misleading because he was only a police officer for three years, and yet he worked for another several decades in different occupations. Now, Well, I think also there's an interesting point to be made here as well. So the murders began in 1973, the same year he became a police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, another interesting thing, three years later, in 76, thereabouts, he was arrested for shoplifting. And, and you have to ask, well, why, why shoplift? Well, he was shoplifting a hammer and dog repellent. What kind of tools would a serial killer who later is found to bludgeon some of his victims to death, what, why, would he, why would he want to shoplift a hammer and dog repellent? Uh, perhaps he was arming himself with the tools necessary to commit these crimes that he was claiming to commit or voices in his head this this name this uh second persona he calls jerry was telling him to commit so you know he he, you're right absolutely most of the crimes he committed were post his career but the early training he received through academic training in criminology and police science his training on the job in a burglary unit uh had to help him understand uh evidence collection and how to avoid being caught as a burglar and uh, later a rapist and murderer. Yeah, and he wasn't very good at shoplifting, obviously, because <laughs> he was caught. Not very good at shoplifting. Yeah, he worked in the burglary unit, but uh, I don't know, I guess he caught himself. Um, no, those are our good points, and he did learn some, I think he did mention somewhere that uh, he used some of his training um, sure. for that. In May oh, 19th, I'm sorry? To avoid capture, but uh, uh, his undoing was not knowing that the future would hold uh, promising forensic science techniques like DNA. Yeah, he actually would have been almost the perfect criminal if it wasn't for DNA. Yeah, perhaps that's irony. Yeah. 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 In May 1970, D'Angelo became engaged to Bonnie, classmate at Sierra College, but she broke off the relationship. And the other thing, folks, too, I want to, now that Andy mentioned it, when he was part of that burglary unit, we don't know what else he was involved in in those six years, 73 to 79 um, he could have been involved in other criminal activity. I mean, he got caught for shoplifting a hammer and a dog repellent, but he could have robbed a lot of other stuff and just never got caught. Um, but it is telling that the criminal behavior continued. So you can see already that something is wrong, obviously, in his head, and very possible psychopath. In November 1973, he married uh, Sharon Huddle and Placer, uh, now known as Loomis. In 1980, they purchased the house in Citrus Heights, where he was eventually arrested Huddle became an attorney in 1982. They had three daughters, two of whom were born in Sacramento and one in L.A. before the couple separated in 1991. And we're seeing patterns here of a psychopath as well, not being able to keep relationships. Uh, It does go a little awry later, and we're going to find that out. Uh, But you see in 1970, he was engaged, broke that off, married somebody else. And then the couple separated in 1991. In July 2018, Huddle filed for divorce. They were divorced in 2019. He was able to maintain the relationship for a long period of time afterwards. And psychopathy does, the, the symptoms and the traits do start to attenuate as you get older. So that could explain some yeah. of the reason he was still married. Uh, maybe it was a great cover. So it could be they're also very manipulative. Um, and- so. Right. It's not unusual for a serial killer um, that operates over a period of decades to be 
uh, on the surface, normal, living a normal life in a happy marriage. I mean, Dennis Rader, the BDK killer, also was married for right. years. His wife was unaware of his double life. In this case, uh, Huddle, after the divorce, people were saying, how could she not know that, you know, she was living with this murder for these decades? And she said, you know, he had plausible reasons for leaving town. He was going pheasant hunting. He was visiting relatives. And she, she trusted. I mean, who doesn't trust their spouse um, unless there's some, you know, some reason not to? And in this case, it wasn't. I find it interesting, too, the year he became a police officer and the year that he got married, 1973, <clears throat> was also the, the year where the earliest rapes were found in uh, Vislia, uh, California. The Vislia Grand Sacker operated in the area from 1973 to 75. Um, it was long suspected that this was the training ground for the Golden State Killer. And, in fact, um, there, were, there were a number of attacks dating back to as early as May 1973. Um, and, and they had nicknames of the Cordova Cat Burglar or the Exeter Ransacker. And the Exeter Ransacker, he was, he was a police officer in Exeter, California. So, you know, hmm. it's interesting and coincidental that his, on the surface, his life appeared very normal. I mean, he got a job in his uh, chosen career field. He gets married, not to the first woman of his choice, but to a woman who later became a successful attorney. And yet he's got this compulsion, this, this urge, this impulse to go out and rape other women and vandalize their homes. Uh, when he was known as a ransacker, it's because he committed 120 burglaries over a 20-month period. And in the process of, of those uh, burglaries, he would go into, into the uh, private homes. Uh, these were home invasions. And he would scatter women's underclothing. He would steal low-value personal items that would he, he would hold on to as, as uh, trophies, uh, probably to ejaculate over later. Um, and this went on, you know, all the way through 75 when he left the area. I might have to take my comment back, too, now that I'm looking at that, because 120 burglaries in 20 months and not getting caught, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty darn oh, good. The guy he was doing, he was a, he was a burglar uh, investigator in the area. He probably just you know didn't catch himself because obviously he knew who was doing it. <laughs> Imagine if you're the burglary investigator and you're committing the burglary. Yeah, yeah, it'd be kind of... Be amazing if you did catch yourself. Well, why don't you take yeah, us through the so details of some of these cases? Sacramento. Yeah, well, you know, he moved to Sacramento in 1976, and then his nickname changed, oddly enough, to the East Area Rapist. Uh, from 1976 to 1979, he went from basically burglaries to burglary and rapes. Um, oh, he's and escalating he entered, here now. Uh, it, there's a clear pathway of escalation. Uh, in, in this particular case. And not only that, and this is also uh, um, common with serial killers, the more he, um, the, the more often he committed these crimes, the more personal the violence became. In other words, he went from shooting victims to bludgeoning them, tying them up first, mm, yeah. bond, you know, in bondage. And then while they were in this helpless state, he, he ended up uh, bludgeoning. He, he started by just attacking women. The earliest crimes were burglary and rapes of women. To then focusing on couples. He literally targeted and attacked couples so that he could bound the male in a cuckold kind of situation, force the male, in some cases, to watch his rape of the female or at least to, to, uh, to emancipate the male to the point where... Um, where he was, he was no longer in a power position. This guy, um, 
D'Angelo was in the power position, which is really what this is all about. This is about anger, and this is about hatred, and this is about this vile kind of compulsion to com- control another human to the point of their death. Yeah, so in, yeah. in, in, yeah, he moves to Sa- Sacramento in 1976 where his crimes escalated from burglary to, to rape. <coughs> Excuse me. Most of the victims uh, heard, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you reminded me of one part. I'm not sure if you're going to talk about this. Uh, you can let me know if you are. Uh, the one where he actually had one of the husbands, I think it was, or a boyfriend, and he had him go face down on the ground and then put plates on his back while he was raping yeah. his wife. So it, he was very, um, I don't want to give him a compliment, but he knew what to do to make sure the person suffered along and also to know if the person moved. Because actually, he didn't wa- let him watch what was happening. He put him in another room. And that's why he put the plates on the back to make sure. Fascinating. Yeah, that, that was. Uh, yeah, that was that was during his uh, crime spree in the East area, uh, part of California, in seventy six to seventy nine. He broke in through a window, a sliding glass door, um, put the, the, the with wow. a handgun. The victims were bound with uh, shoelaces, uh, and then he took the female victim, forced her uh, to tie up her male companion. Put as you said, put the uh, plates on his back, threatened to kill um, both of them uh, if the woman or the male moved. And then he raped her several times over several hours. Um, and then afterwards, he uh, he stole their personal belongings. He would threaten to be leaving. He'd creep away. But then he would still be in the house to test them to see what they were going to do. And then he finally he left. Um, it, but there was a general progression from just raping this couple um, and attacking them, uh, the the attacks in 1976 to 77 actually started becoming more frequent and more violent uh, to the point where in um, 1978 he killed his first uh, couple, Brian McGorry, a military policeman at uh, Mathers Air Force Base, and his wife, uh, Katie. They were walking their dog in 1978 um, when they were, were attacked by... Um, uh, D'Angelo, uh, and they were shot um, in in that particular case. They were just chased down and shot dead. Um, and this was the first murder in the East Area by the East Area rapist. Yeah, and it sounds then like again, something went wrong for him on that one. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because yeah. his MO kind of changed on that one. Well, there were a couple cases, you know, through these decades where if the male um, fought back, he, he simply shot him and killed him or attempted to kill him. Um, so that, that, that's probably what happened in that particular case. I, I, I don't have all the facts in, in that particular incident, but it sounds to me like these people fought back. Um, he, he became the original Night Stalker. You talked about Ramirez, you know, being given the name Night Stalker. So uh, after Richard Ramirez was um, given that nickname, um, the unsolved murders were known as the original Night Stalker. And by the way, here's an interesting point, too, because this is part of the investigative process. I think our, our listeners might be interested in. The reason they could tell that these crimes were connected is because a number of the knots that were used, the literature knots, were, were the same. So the modus uh-huh. operandi, the, the, the process by which these victims were assaulted and the, pro- the processes of that assault were very similar. Um, so they didn't have, in all cases, DNA, but they didn't need it in all cases because they could tie these crimes together based on the way the interaction occurred between the subject 
and the victim, which is just good police work. Absolutely. And surprising that he didn't catch that, but I guess he was part of the burglary unit, not the homicide. Yeah, you know, another interesting uh, point in researching this particular case, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things about this case, and I'm sure there's a documentary or two that I probably should watch. Um, but he often fled the crime scene on a bicycle or yeah. on foot. What was that all about? Uh, you know, one would only speculate. Um, if you talk to him, he probably has, you know, a, a, a good reason for it. Um, but I, I think probably in his mind, he's less, um, you know, less suspicious on a bicycle than, you know, in a speeding car. Uh, just out somebody riding the bike is less suspicious looking than, than you know, perhaps somebody that's in, uh, a stranger in a neighborhood in a car. You know what? Another sense is he, he could hide yeah, the bike. He could hide the bike behind bushes, I guess, if you're targeting a house, and people would notice, like a car sitting out parked in front. You guess you could notice. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's just a smaller footprint, yeah. you know, and so it's less suspicious looking. He also he also attacked people. He would basically hunt them, and and all oftentimes did it in affluent neighborhoods. <coughs> Excuse me. One of his uh, victims, the couple, was a nurse, and and the male was uh, a medical student. And in fact, in this particular case, and this is a bit of irony, um, the brother of the victim um, gave $2 million towards the development of the uh, California database for DNA. Huh. <laughs> that yeah. is ironic, because you later, when you later tell us um, how he got caught, that, um, that'll play a, play a big role. Yeah. And, you know, throughout the, uh, the, the late 70s, what the police noticed was in, in these victims, the, the literature, the, the knots were similar. The two knots particularly, Chinese knot and a diamond knot. Chinese knot is not a common knot. And uh, so they were able to tie these victims together, and he became known as the diamond knot killer for a while. Again, you know, they kept changing his nickname because they had these unsolved crimes. It was also about this time frame, um, late 70s, I believe, that he changed from using uh, a, uh, a pistol to using um, blunt instruments uh, and, right. and causing blunt force trauma. Uh, he bludgeoned to death, bludgeoned to death um, a young lady by the name of Lynn uh, Lyman Smith, and uh, I'm sorry, Charlene Smith, and, uh, and her husband Lyman Smith. Uh, they had bet she was raped. And a log from a wood pile on the side of their house was used to bludgeon both of the victims. Both victims had been tied, wrists and ankles bound, and then um, and then he he uh, bludgeoned bludgeoned them. It, it, it takes a special type of murderer. Um, Ted Bundy was one of these types to just viciously beat somebody to death. There's a lot of blood. A lot of a person doesn't die quickly when they're beaten to death. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of yelling, screaming, you know, even if you're bound, um, pleading for, uh, for help, pleading for mercy. Um, and then even at the point of death, it's, it doesn't, it's not quiet because the human reaction to dying is, is, is obviously to try to live. So there's, you know, especially when you're beaten around the head and the throat, there's gurgling and all of this gets this killer off. I mean, that's what they thrive on is under, understand that they need this control over the victim. And the, at the point of death, oftentimes they get uh, sexually stimulated. And this, wow. in particular, this particular case, he, he would rape women. And some of the DNA that was recovered was his semen 
uh, that was left in the victim's body. It's interesting when you mentioned Bundy, because Bundy had almost a similar trajectory, because he was a lot more, he was less violent in the beginning of his murders. And then as, as years right. went on, he became, started devolving, I guess, and escalating in violence. It's almost like they get right. desensitized, they don't care as much. It's well, interesting. I, I think there's some of that. I think there's you know, been studies about, you know, uh, sex and pornography and how the, the oh, yeah. more uh, the more addicted you become to pornography, the more uh, the more desensitized you become to the pornography. Um, and so you know, maybe there's some of that at play here. <clears throat> In any case, he uh, he continued his killing um, through the 70s. And, um, and and left a, a fair amount of DNA um, in these cases. So There's something uh, else I wanted was, to ask you, too. Uh, yeah, in the 70s, yeah. I mean, he traveled a lot. He traveled all over the coast of California. And mm-hmm. I'm assuming we always hear the stories where law enforcement really didn't communicate with one, each, one another. And California in the 70s, you know, you, you got a small, not a small population, but it's obviously smaller than it is today. Um, you know, he was in small towns like Visalia, and he was down in Irvine, where they, they had very small populations. Um, right. So, is it possible, more than likely, right, that these departments didn't know that this was a traveling serial killer? They probably had no connection to not each just, other. Yeah, not just possible, highly likely that that was the case. You remember that this is the early seventies. The FBI's behavioral science unit wasn't even in existence. The um, the national database for uh, serial killers was not in existence. Uh, you know, things have changed dramatically, not just the DNA. So where you would have cases like this today, uh, the, um, the FBI's database would more quickly tie together um, those serial killers based on those, you know, again, the MO, based on the victimization, based on, the crime scene, and based on the fact that local police now know that the database exists and, and they can, you know, better identify uh, linkage between murders in, in, a, in a larger geographical area. That's the uh, Vicap yeah, you're referring great, to, right? That's an excellent point, by the way. That's the Vicap you were, thank you, sir. That's the Vicap yeah, you were referring Vicap is the database that exists at the Critical Incident Response Group in, uh, in Stafford, Virginia. And, and you have behavioral assessment uh, or behavioral analysis coordinators in every field office. So uh, the FBI did get involved in this particular case late because um, it wasn't solved until, you know, 2018. Um, and sometime during this period, there was a profile of this individual made uh, both from the uh, witnesses of the crimes as well as some of the uh, uh, psychological characteristics. The, the physical characteristics, that they knew that this was a white male, so, you know, some of the victims who got got away, there was a couple that did get away. They, they, they uh, uh, made some noise and he, he, he ran off. Um, they knew he was a white male, that he was about 5'10", uh, athletically built. Uh, they knew, based on uh, prints in, in and around the areas of the attacks, that his uh, shoe size was 9 to 9.5 inches. Um, they knew that he had a type A, he was type a blood. Um and he, they knew that his sperm did not contain blood group antigens because, again, he left, he left uh, DNA uh, in his victims. Uh, they knew that he was physically uh, agile. He was, he was capable of, of you know, riding a bike and, uh, and sprinting uh, because he did run away in one particular case. Um, they also figured that he was between 18 and 25 when he began these crimes in 1973. 
Uh, they believed he was going to be in his mid-70s uh, by the time they got uh, when he was captured in 1918, which turned out he was, I think, 74 years old. Um, the, the psychological profile uh, showed, and this was done by uh, Leslie uh, D'Ambrose. Uh, she was the primary uh, profile, if you want to call a profiler. Um, but they, they basically said that they we're looking for a man who was 26 to 30 years old. Of course, this is back, you know, when crimes just began uh, in the 70s. So he was between 26 and 30. Um, paraphilic behavior. He was involved in, in this brutal, impulsive uh, type of behavior. Um, the sadist. In, in his he a sadist, yeah. Uh, engaged in sex with prostitutes. They speculated he had. I don't know if this has been uh, confirmed in interviews with him. But they uh, believed that even though he was married, that he had married, he had sex with prostitutes outside his marriage. Uh, th this is a no-brainer, that he had knowledge of police investigative methods and, and gathering uh, <laughs> techniques. Yeah. Um, that was a was side note, I think. This. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, again, uh, that was probably because there was a general absence of, you know, fingerprints and things that you would normally see in a burglary or, you know, if, if it was unorganized. Uh, or disorganized. And, and they also figured that he was uh, sexually functional because he ejaculated um, with his victims. Um, and so they figured that, he, you know, he, he was sexually functional. They speculated that he had um, some standing in, in, in the neighborhoods, and he wouldn't be out of place in upscale neighborhoods. As I mentioned, he attacked people in several upscale neighborhoods. They figured that he lived or worked in the same areas that he committed these crimes in, and that was true, even when he moved. Um, so there were a number of different things that, that, um, led them to believe they were dealing with someone who, uh, had a criminal record as a teenager that had been expunged. Remember, he was arrested as a teenager, so they were right on that. Um, they, they also speculated that he hated women and, uh, that could be from the manner in which he committed these, these acts, these criminal acts. I mean, rape is an, is a, is an act of anger and control. Uh, so that's, you know, not too far conceived from uh, from this profile. They figured he was intelligent. I mean, guy had a bachelor's degree. And that uh, he was self-assured and confident in his actions. And, and listen, if, if you commit 120 burglaries and you're not caught, uh, I would imagine you get pretty self-assured and confident in what you're doing. You know, so, that, um, that's the point I guess yeah. I, I wanted to make was interesting. Is he He's actually not as common as in regards to his traits as a serial killer, I mean, he's targeting upscale neighborhoods. He's targeting couples. Yeah. That is not the usual. Doesn't mean it hasn't happened. It has. But they tend to target a lot of, of vulnerable female victims, well, a lot of prostitutes, a lot yes of homeless no. people. You're right. There's a history of serial killers to do that. But Ted Bundy didn't. He, he killed college co -ed. What's what I was and, saying? Uh, not all of them, but he's definitely not in right. the majority in his killing because he picked a very selective group. Well, Dennis group. Rader didn't. Dennis Rader killed, you know, people like these people, you know, local people in the area, uh, you know, families that he stalked and, yeah, and, yeah. and murdered. Well, Rader um, actually resembles yeah. him quite a bit. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities there. Yeah. I think Rader, um, and, and, didn't Rader do knots too? Yeah. Yes, he did. Absolutely did. Yeah, because he was, you know, BDK, bound people and, and, and had some unique knots. When was Rader? He, uh, I can't remember the Rader years. <laughs> um, that was uh, late 80s, 90s. You know, it, it happened over a period of a decade, 15 years thereabouts. I wonder if he copied this so, guy. So, uh, 
I, you know what? I don't know if these guys necessarily copy each other. I think they're, they're, they're focused on their own compulsion. That's a, um, that's a hell of a coincidence. Because I know they read a lot of homicide detective magazines. I wonder if maybe some of them are in there. I mean, you know, you're right. I mean, the, there are the Dahmers in the world and the John Wayne Gacy's that, you know, prey on, on vulnerable, you know, in those cases, they were young men that they, they would lure in and then, you know, drug and kill, and in one case, eat. Uh, the other case, bury under their home. I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot of that. Uh, but here's the one common theme is that hmm. most of these have a sexual component. All of these cases All have these. a sexual component. Yeah. yeah. And, and so there's that part of it. And another part that's interesting about this particular case is his need to communicate, and, and in some cases, I guess, taunt uh, authorities through this period. Uh, he wrote a letter in 1977 called Excitement's Craze, and he sent it to the Sacramento Bee. I won't go through the process of reading the, the uh, poem, but he writes a poem. Then the other thing, they found a journal that he wrote. I think this, I think this is telling you. You probably find this interesting. In his journal, he talks about being six years old, and, and he goes into great detail about being disappointed, terms he uses disappointment a number of times, embarrassed, humiliated, and angry about his sixth-grade teacher and, and an assignment that he was uh, given. He says in the journal entry that uh, he was he found this assignment to be humiliating. Mad, quote-unquote, mad is the word, the word that reminds me of my sixth grade. I hated that year. And he goes on and on describing this, this very um, inappropriate level of anger and angst uh, because of a, an assignment that he had to write in sixth grade. So perhaps as early as, you know, sixth grade, you're, uh, what, 11, 12 years old, he was having uh, anger processing issues uh, that may have, you know, contributed to his lack of, of, uh, of uh, compassion and empathy later on in life. He later, Absolutely. during the uh, 70s, in the 70s, he, he starts calling uh, the police department. In one call, he says, I'm the east side rapist. In uh, March of 1977, he calls the sheriff's department, and he says, uh, uh, the, the calls were made about, and they weren't recorded, but he says, I'm the east side rapist. I have my next victim already stalked, and you guys can't catch me. Yeah, he um, wasn't too far off he, the truth. I mean, he tries that today, he would have been that, caught. Yeah. He also says in 77, he, he calls the police. He says, you're never going to catch me. Uh, you're dumb fuckers. I'm going to fuck again tonight. Be careful. Um, so he's giving the police warning, and, 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 and this is all in 1977, by the way. The third call, Merry Christmas. He says, uh, Merry Christmas, it's me again. It's really kind and of like the Zodiac killer he, here. Right. And, and two times in 78, he, he calls, again, taunting. He says, going to kill you, going to kill you, going to kill you, bitch, 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 fucking whore. Uh, and then the last call in uh, January of 78, so this all happened uh, in about nine months period, from March 77 to January 78. He went through a period of taunting police. And he says, I believe you're tracing this. Oh, he goes, and, and this is in January 78. I have a problem, he says. And he calls the, the local rapist hotline. I have a problem. I need help because I don't want to do this anymore. After a short conversation, he, he said, uh, I believe you were tracing this call. And then he hung up. And that was in uh, 78. Um, wow, I'm sorry. And, 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 yeah, he does call. He does call a couple. There's a, a long period of, of, of silence. Then in, in '82 and up to 2001, he makes the last call. Um, and his last call to the Sacramento Bee in 
in 2001, April of 2001, was, uh, he says, um, remember when we played. In 2001, so he was about 56 years old, so that his, his spree was between 28 and 33. Then it, something happened. Now, again, folks, we don't know during that 20 years, he could have still been committing crimes, just not getting caught. Um, right. So, so it's complicated, too. A lot of times people don't realize that. Maybe 10 years from now, we're, we hear other cases that are solved and connected to him. But there's definitely yeah, some kind of... Yeah, I think that's interesting. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think the, the interesting thing is you, you're talking about him not being caught. Had it not been for the development of the California DNA database and then some very clever uh, investigative work by um, mm -hmm. the lead uh, detective, uh, Paul Holes, and an FBI agent, Steve Kramer, um, I don't know that he would have been caught. In, in, um, in 2018, the Sacramento Sheriff's Department arrested him. Uh, and they charged him with eight counts of first-degree murder uh, with spe special circumstance. But um, what happened was it, by, by the 2000s, the advent of DNA helped link these crimes to, you know, people uh, that, you know, committed them over a larger period of, of, of time or geographical area. Um, what happened in this particular case was they, um, they went and collected um, some DNA, uh, they matched it on a uh, geo, uh, geometric website, genome website called GED Match. So uh, this FBI agent named Kramer and this local detective, uh, Holes, um, they went to um, the DNA website with the Ventura rape kit, the, the DNA they had from the rape kit out of Ventura, one of the crimes there. And they identified 10 to 20 people who had the same great, great, great grandparents as the Golden State Killer. Now, imagine this, Carlos. So they now, this is the first real break in the case. So we're talking now about the, and everybody's interested, you know, how do you solve these types of cases? What was the break in the case? I could, I believe me, I can imagine being Agent Kramer or Holes when they got those 10 to 20 um, matches on the uh, DNA database. A team of five investigators started going through uh, all of these matches with a genealogist, uh, Barbara Revenetta. Revenetta. Uh, they use this list to construct a family tree. So they're, you know, like a timeline. And I've done that as an investigator. You build timelines in uh, crime, uh, criminal enterprise cases. In this particular case, they're building a family tree, a timeline of genetics. And they established two suspects. Uh, one of the suspects was ruled out based on uh, the relative's DNA test, and that left D'Angelo as the only suspect left. So this is in um, this is in April 2018. You know, so now they have uh, they have DNA from D'Angelo that they believe it could trace them back to the Golden State Killer, but they needed to confirm it. So what they do is they they get a warrant, they go collect um, DNA from uh, a door handle. I don't think they needed a warrant for that. So they just went and got, uh, surreptitiously, they collected this handle from his car. Um, but then they, they wanted to double check it. So they uh, found tissue, and they probably didn't get a warrant for this either because it was abandonment uh, and a, a curbside garbage can. So they waited till he abandoned his garbage. They got the tissue out of the garbage can, and they got DNA. Both of those matched the Golden State Killer's DNA. So now they can get a warrant for the arrest of D'Angelo, which they did. And almost immediately, D'Angelo offers up a confession. 
He, uh, he basically says, as he's arrested, that an inner personality named Jerry had forced him to commit the waves of crime that ended in 1986. He said that um, he didn't have the strength to push him out early on, but he, but he finally did. He said, it was like, Jerry was in my head. I mean, he's part of me. I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out, and I had a happy life. But I did all those things. I destroyed all their lives. So now I got to pay the price. That was his cryptic confession. Um, he wasn't charged with the rapes and the burglars because in California they had statute of limitations that expired on those charges. But he was charged with 13 counts of murder and 13 counts of kidnapping. And he was arraigned in Sacramento in 2018. In November 2018, uh, prosecutors basically estimated it was going to cost the taxpayers $20 million uh, and probably 10 years to prosecute the case. So uh, they decided to go after him on the death penalty or with the death penalty charge. And uh, it was scheduled to go to trial in March of uh, 2020. Uh, but in, instead, D'Angelo offered a plea agreement. Uh, he pled guilty uh, if the death penalty was going to be taken off the table. So that was done in March of 2020. And then in June of 2020, he pled guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances. Um, in order to avoid the death penalty, he got life without a uh, possibility of parole. And then August of August 21, 2020, uh, he was sentenced to multiple consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. He offered a brief apology after listening to the victim impact statements, one of which I think is pretty interesting. I'm going to read to you. Um, but he said, I've listened to all your statements, each one of them. I'm truly sorry for everyone that I have hurt. Thank you, Your Honor. That was his last words. What was interesting in the victim impact statement was um, a young lady named uh, Jane Carlson Sandler, Sandler, who was raped in 1976 by D'Angela. She said, and I quote, uh, you're finally going to prison and will remain there until you die. She said, I recall you famously left a roast in your oven when police moved in to make their arrest. Um, too bad you won't get to enjoy it. We will have a feast every anniversary date, April 24th, hmm. to remember and celebrate that day. Wow. Yeah. Man. Yeah. No, it's, um... Yeah, I mean, he's a special type of evil, I think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We could be here on forever, but we don't... Uh... It's a fascinating case. Fascinating case. Thankfully, he was caught, and justice is actually going to be dispensed. Andy, fascinating yeah. indeed. Yeah, another uh, another interesting case. I always look forward to chatting with you about these things. They they always uh, they bring back memories of chasing monsters. <laughs> yes, and we can't thank you enough for the service that you did provide to our country, Andy. So Andy, I'd, like to, I'd like to turn back time and do it all over again. You know, we'll see what next week will bring us. I think we'll start delving into uh, looking at some of these issues more deeply and see what we can find. But you never know. If something pops up in the news, we might have to tackle that too. Well, folks, yeah. this is going to wrap us up tonight or today. Thank you so much for joining us. Andy, any final words? Always a pleasure, Carlos. No, it's a long weekend. I'm heading to the mountains, my parents, my in-laws. So enjoy your weekend. We'll see you next week. That's right. Stay safe, everyone.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.